Well, Jamie, I already told you that we're beginning a new series in the book of Daniel. Now, what we're going to be talking about is the idea that we're going to be detectable, if you will, visible disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks as we gather together around the book of Daniel. We're just going to look at chapter 1 in the book, but that is what we're going to be talking about, being a detectable, a visible disciple of Jesus Christ. This morning, it was read for you that we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 1, but I'm going to extend it from verses 1 to 7 to verses 1 to 8. And we're going to be talking about being Christian in an unchristian world, how to be godly in an ungodly situation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I would ask that you would forgive me and cleanse me of any sin that would hinder the preaching of your word, and that you would fill me and that you would be the preacher, that you would speak to your people and you wouldn't just allow us to be hearers of your word, but doers of it, that you wouldn't just stir us, but that you would change us and you would empower us to be change agents in the culture in which we live. For Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name and it's his name we pray, amen and amen. Verse 1 says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, King Judah of, Nebuch- of King Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he, had, he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. I want you to look at verse 2 there, and it says, The Lord delivered. The Lord delivered. In other words, the Lord turned over. He gave to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar didn't take. He gave the people of God to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar did not take them. Now the next question is, why would God give his people to an evil, wicked king like Nebuchadnezzar? Because his people were rebelling against him. God continued to go to them and talk to them repeatedly, over and over again, telling them to repent from their sin. But they refused. They continued to be disobedient to God and wanted nothing to do with them. They just continued to do their own thing. So God finally gave to them what they wanted. And he gave them to themselves. And he lifted his hand of protection from them. And then as soon as he did that, Nebuchadnezzar came in and took them captive. And they became slaves back in Babylon. Isn't that how it works with sin, isn't it? That we begin to refuse to do what God is asking us to do. We want to do our own thing. And then finally we get what we want. And sin takes a hold. And we become slaves to it as well as to the enemy. But, you know, Nebuchadnezzar just didn't take the people back to Babylon. But it goes on, it says in our verse, it says that he also took some of the articles from the temple of God. Now, why would he take some of the articles from the temple of God and take them back to his temple? Well, back in the day, back in that day, when you overthrew another kingdom, And the people in that kingdom do not or did not believe in your God or didn't worship your God. 
then it meant that when you overcame or conquered that particular kingdom and that group of people, you not only overcame that people, but you overcame their God. And it meant that your God was greater than their God. So he took the articles out of the temple and took him back because he believed that he not only won the battle against the people of God, but against God himself, the God of Israel. Now we know the end of the story. We know what Daniel teaches us in chapter 4, verse 27 and 39. We discover there that Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. And he comes to a realization that the God of Israel is greater than any of the gods in Babylon. And greater than he himself. And he's humbled. And if you read the story there, he goes out and he has to spend seven years in the wilderness eating like, like, a, like a cow. The grass. His hair grows as long as eagles' wings. Claws like, bird, like, a, like birds. And he ends up becoming insane. But then God, finally, he lifts his eyes to heaven and he begins to repent and turn to the living God, the God of Israel. And then he's restored. And when he comes back, he honors not only Daniel, but he ends up worshiping Daniel's God. Now, I say that to you to help you understand, because a few of you probably in this room are losing some battles in the workplace, in the community, in the culture, or in your family. And you, come, you, you kind of wonder... Is God going to win this or not? You kind of wonder, and I want to remind you today, today that God is still in control. God has the last word, everybody. Remember that. We, we read the last book of the Bible. He wins, and so do we. So remember that. He's still in control. He has the last word. But not only did Nebuchadnezzar take the people... And some items from the temple of God back to Babylon. But he took an elite youth group back to Babylon. Jamie has already read really well for us verses 3 through 7. But let me just try to articulate them in my own words, if you will. But there in verses 3 and 7, we find out that Nebuchadnezzar goes to his chief official and he tells him, I want you to bring the best young men that Israel has to offer back to Babylon. So the official gathers up what historians tell us about 40 to 70 young men. Most of them believe it's 70. And they were between the ages of 13 and 17 years old. That's why I call it an elite youth group. Elite youth group of young men. And the Bible tells us that they were the most beautiful, the most brilliant, and the best that all of Israel had to offer. And they took them back to Babylon, and once they were there, they were assembled before the king, and the king had a plan for them. And the plan was to assimilate these young men into his culture, into his kingdom. And the way that he was going to do that is he was going to brainwash these 70 young men, in three ways. He was going to change the way, he was going to, going to change their thinking, their lifestyle, and their identity. Their thinking, their lifestyle, and their identity. And he believed if he could change those three things, then he could get them to give up their allegiances to their God, 
the God of Israel, and begin to commit themselves to his gods, because, of course, his gods are greater than the God of Israel, and then they would commit themselves to him so that he could use these great leaders of Israel, these young leaders, train them up because he has hundreds of thousands of Jewish people now in his kingdom, and he was hoping to take those men and distribute them among those people so that they might rule and reign with Nebuchadnezzar so that they might influence the people of Israel to think the way that he's trained these young men to think so that they would become loyal to Babylon rather than the nation of Israel. That was his plan. And his plan was to change the way that they were thinking, their lifestyle, and their identity. Let's look first of all at how he changed their thinking. In verse 4, it says, he was teaching them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Proverbs says, as a man thinks, so is he. Nebuchadnezzar knew that, it, that he could not get these young men to behave like Babylonians until he first made them think like Babylonians. So he put them in a very rigorous and very intense educational process in the way of Babylon. He began to teach them the literature and the language, the culture, the religion, the economics, and so on, until they learned all that they could about Babylon. You've heard me say that you sow a thought, you reap an action. You sow an action, you reap a character. You sow a character, and you reap a destiny. Nebuchadnezzar knew that. He knew in order to change their destiny and their character and their action, he first had to change their thinking. And he started with their minds. He moves on from their thinking to their lifestyle. Look what it says over in verse 5. It says, the king assembled them or assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to pamper these young men, young men into the delicacies of all that Babylon had to offer the best food, the best wine that Babylon had. He, he wanted to make them live lives that were large, to live the high life, to lift up their standard to the point once they experienced all the delicacies and all, delicacies and all the different things that Babylon had to offer them in food, wine, and entertainment, and so on, that they'd never want to go back to Israel. They never want to go back into that lifestyle. Thirdly, he not only was to change their thinking and their lifestyle, but he went after their identity. Look what he does in verse 7. It says, the chief official gave them new names. New names. All four young men had names that reflected their godly Hebrew heritage. In other words, it was custom in, in Israel that fathers and mothers would name their children after characteristics of God or some aspect of their faith. And they would give them that name in hopes that their children would live up to their name. See, the people of Israel understood that a name had power. It could impact. It could shape the image and the character of a person's life. They learned that from God himself. For if you look in the Old Testament or the New Testament and someone's name doesn't match the plan that God has for that person, what's he do? He changes their name. 
Abram was changed to Abraham. Sarai was changed to Sarah in the New Testament. Simon was changed to Peter. And Saul was changed to Paul. And every time, God understands the power in a name. Well, we we here in America know this one saying. Sticks and stones may break our bones, but what? Names will never hurt us. We know that's a lie. Names have power, and they do hurt us. And names can be either used to be positive or negative impact. Nebuchadnezzar understood this. So he changed these four boys' names that all reflected a characteristic of the God of Israel to four names that reflected characteristics of his gods and hoped that he might change their identity. Parents, I just want to say this to us. You need to be very, very careful about the names we use when we're talking to our children, especially when we're angry. Because those names and words coming from you are extremely influential. They have impact. And you want to be someone who strengthens your child, not tears them down. So be very, very careful about the words you use to describe your children. Well, Nebuchadnezzar understood these great truths. So he went after their thinking, their lifestyle, and their identity. And how long did that last? In verse 5, it tells us, you guys look really miserable. Can I say that to you today? I'm looking at you going like, wow, and that was a really bad word to use, but I'm sorry. Very good. You ready? These were, this was going to go on for three years. Three years, everybody. They were going to go into this process of great training for three years. He was going to brainwash these kids, these young men and women. Now, you might be asking yourself, okay, Pastor Ed, that's what the Word of God says. We understand it, hopefully, more clearly than we did before. But what's the point? How does that impact us? Let me me make a statement here. According to Barna Research, Barna Research is very respected, not only in the sacred, but the secular community. Barna Research. And this is what Barna came up with. He says that 62% of Christian people who made a commitment to Jesus Christ go to college and chuck their faith. 62% of the young men and women who go off to college chuck their faith. Now, am I saying that going to college is wrong? No. Am I saying this morning that going to a Christian college or a secular college is wrong? I'm I'm not talking about whether you should go to college or not. But what I am saying is if you're going to go to something, whether it's a college or a workplace or whatever, but especially to college, that if you're going to go there and you're not prepared and you don't have a plan, then you're going to end up like the 62% who chucked their faith. Now, I've been working with young people for over 30 years, and I know this truth. I know that 75% of the young people who go off to college at first are not going off off to college because they want a college education. They're going off to college because they want to have the college experience. They want to experience college. And then hopefully when they're there, they they buckle down and they get an education, but they want the college experience. 
the movies and the media tell all about it and they want to go out and do it. But what are they showing our young people lifestyle that's there? When they go to this college, not three years, but four years, when they get onto that campus, they're encouraged to experience all kinds of lifestyles. They're encouraged by that. And then the ones who are educating the students that we send to them, they boast about the fact that they're going to train your child in a humanistic, secular, atheistic worldview. And they'll even boast about the fact that they're atheists. And this goes on in liberal and conservative colleges. This goes on in Christian, liberal, and conservative colleges. This goes on everywhere throughout our country. And we wonder why we've lost the Judeo-Christian ethic in America is because we've been sending our kids off to these colleges and they've been sitting in there for three to four years influenced by these people and they're not prepared and they never had a plan to go there in the first place. So if you're going to be the 38% that comes out of the, of the school's Stronger than you went in, you've got to have a plan and you've got to be prepared. Daniel came out of this thing as a Christian and he didn't chuck his faith. He went into the whole process and he stayed Christian in an unchristian world. So let's learn from him. How about it? You want to? You want to really learn about how we can be Christian in an unchristian world? Then let's learn together. Here it says in verse 8, this is how we see it being done. And by the way, by the way, the historians tell us that there were 70 of them, right? But we only read about four of them in the book of Daniel. So most likely, not guaranteed, but most likely, the 66 other young men that went with them, they chucked their faith. You see these percentages, folks? When you find yourself in an unchristian world, a lot of them, a lot of us believers, chuck our faith. So how can we know that we're not going to do that? Let's learn from Daniel. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now we know that Nebuchadnezzar gave, he said he was going to change them in three ways. Daniel, apparently, is only taking on one of the three. So that means two of the three, he accepts. He accepts, number one, that he's okay about the process of education. He said, bring it on. He's okay about the fact that they've given him a new name. And apparently, because he knows who he is and who he belongs to. See, he knows who he is, and he knew who he belonged to, so he wasn't intimidated by that. And he wasn't, has, didn't have a problem about the educational process because he knew what he believed in and he knew why. And no matter what they were going to throw towards him, he believed that he was prepared to take on whatever they were going to give him because he could discern, because he knew what and why he believed what he believed, so he could discern the right and the wrong, the good and the bad, and the true and the false. And he could navigate through whatever they threw at him because he already was prepared. But he also knew that he was going to have to live inside that culture for many, many years. So he was okay to learn about the culture, to learn how to function and operate in that culture. Not so that that nation could influence him, but that he might influence the nation. 
And what did he do? We know that Daniel and those three boys ended up changing the nation. Those three teenage boys changed that nation. So can you go to a secular school? Can you go to a Christian school? Can you live in an environment that absolutely is against you and your faith and still survive and influence those people? These boys did. At 13 and 17 years old. Why? Because they were prepared. And they had a plan. The first thing we learn here is that Daniel, he says, okay, these first two, bring it on. But this last one, no way. Why does he draw a line on the third one? Don't say it out loud, but do you know why? He draws a line here. He says, no, I'm not going to eat the food. And I'm not going to drink the wine from the king's table. You know why? Because he knew the word of God. He knew the word of God. He knew that the word of God said in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Exodus, Exodus chapter 34, verse 15, says specifically that they're not to eat any food that has been offered or sacrificed to idols or pagan gods. He knew that. So he knew, hear me now, he knew if he took that food off that table and ate that, that he was going to be disobedient to his Lord and to the word of God. And why were they in Babylon, everybody? They were in Babylon because they were being disobedient. He didn't want to become any more disciplined than he already was experiencing because he was disobedient. He said, no way, I'm not going to take that food. I'm not going to break the laws of God. But it wasn't enough that he knew this truth. You know, the Bible says that the devil knows the word of God. You know what? He can quote the word of God better than you. And it says even in the Bible that the demons believe in Christ. Are they going into the kingdom of God? No, not at all. So it's not enough that we know the word of God. Here's the second thing you've got to do in order to be prepared. You not only need to know the word of God, but you've got to be committed completely to the word of God. Look what Daniel does in verse 8. It says, Daniel resolved not to defile. That word resolved literally means... He made up his mind ahead of time. He made up his mind to be obedient to God and to his word before he ever went to Babylon. He determined in his mind, in his heart, that he was not going to defile. He was not going to be disobedient. He decided that. So when they came and asked him, no matter what, whether they were going to commend him or there was going to be consequences, he was going to say no. Matter of fact, there was tremendous consequences. Do you know when he said no to this, you know what this meant? It meant two things. At best, he would not move up the ladder in the royal palace. That was the best. The worst is they would kill him. You see, he had a boss, the king of Nebuchadnezzar. His boss didn't just fire you. He killed you. And Daniel says no. But not only did Daniel say no... And he was prepared to say it, but he had a plan. He had a plan. And this is where most people, they try to say no, and they become these martyrs, and then they're dead. But Daniel was wise. He said, I'm going to say no, but I've got a plan. He started praying, and God gave him wisdom about what to do. And here's his plan. His plan is found right in verse 8. Watch this. He said, he asked the chief official... 
for permission not to defile himself this way. Verse 9 tells you, God gave him favor. God gave him favor with his, with his, with his supervisor. And he went to his supervisor and he said, listen, man, listen to me. Give us 10 days. Give us 10 days to work our plan, our dietary plan. We'll work our plan, and if we're not brighter and look better than everybody else, then come back and talk to us. But I'll guarantee you this, if you let us work our plan, we'll not only be commended, but you're going to be commended. And his supervisor said, all right, you got 10 days. They had three years. Give them 10 days. We'll see what you got. They go, and they eat nothing but vegetables, water, right? And they come out, and this is what it says in verse 15. Verse 15, same chapter, chapter 1. This is what it says. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better than everyone else. And then what happens? In the same story in chapter 1, they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar sooner or later. And this is what happens to Daniel and his buddies. In verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the rest. And they were commended, and they were exalted, if you will, and blessed. Why? Because they honored God, and God honored them for sure. But because they had prepared themselves, and they had a plan. Let me ask you, are you in environments that are unchristian? Are you headed towards one? Are you prepared? In other words, do you know the Word of God and know why and what you believe? Have you determined in your heart that you're not going to, 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 to defile what you know to be true? And do you have a plan to know, because if you're going to be in that environment or part of that environment, sooner or later they are going to confront you and they're going to ask you to compromise. Do you have a plan? The best thing you can do is pray and ask God to give you a plan. But first and foremost, you got to be prepared. Now, how's this work? What's it look like in life? Let me give you two examples. First of all, because there's a number of young people here today, I'm going to give you one example for you. And then I'm going to give an example for all of us. Okay, young people, I've been working with young men and women for over 30 years. Tens of thousands of them. And when I'm speaking to them, I talk to you often about the fact what the Bible says, so that you know what the Bible says. And the Bible says about dating and sex... It says that you're not to have sex before marriage. That's it. No questions asked about it. Over and over in the scriptures. Are you supposed to have sex before marriage? Absolutely not. But then as I teach them what the word of God says about all of that, then I say to them, but you can know all about the truth of what God says. But until you determine, and in your, mar- in your heart and mind, not to go against that word, to be obedient to it, until you make that decision, doesn't matter what I teach you. But once you make that decision that you're not going to violate, violate that, in other words, you're going to be pure before God when you get married. Once you make that decision, then you've got to make a plan to keep yourself out of those situations. You understand? You've got you to know what the Word of God says, but you've got to make a decision. I'm not going to do that. And once that becomes your decision, then you've got to make a plan. And then I go through teaching them a number of things that they're not to do, places not to do, principles to apply, so they don't, they don't put themselves in situations where that'll occur. One of the things I've always taught people is this, that dating alone in secluded places is a disastrous practice. Let me say that again. 
Dating alone in secluded places is a disastrous practice. Every young person that's ever come into my room and said that they've had sex or they're pregnant, they didn't have sex and get pregnant in front of a group of people. At least not Christians. So if you're not going to allow yourself to be alone with the one you feel you love, and by the way, love doesn't have to have anything to do with it. But as long as you say that you love this person, that you're not going to be alone, you're not going to practice that kind of behavior because you know that it's going to lead you into a disastrous practice and that's how it all goes down. Let me tell you this, young people, don't ever come up and say to anybody they don't know how that went down. You know how it went down. People say that to me. Pastor Ed, we don't know how. how, What happened? (laughs) What are you talking? No, no. What you really are telling me is not, you know how it happened. You weren't prepared and you had no plan to keep it from happening. Young people, let me tell you this. Look right here. That's a decision you've got to make. And after 30 years, I've seen thousands of young men and women who've decided not to do that, and their marriages are strong. Their children, they're there to to raise those children. And when they're having sex with their wife or their husband, they're not thinking about anybody else. Now, if you've made a mistake and you've made a mess of some things, God can forgive you, believe me. And he can restore you like you're white as snow. But you've got to decide what in the world you believe and make a commitment to it. Now let's move on to the parents and to the rest of us. We, have all, we all work jobs. We all have jobs, most of us in this room, or if you don't have a job, you will. And I'm going to tell you a story about my wife, Tammy. When we first got married, oh, let me tell you this, by the way. Quickly, I went in, I got to be honest. My wife and I, we were dating and we were up in my apartment and we were engaged. And I was sitting in my apartment and we were watching television and we had a bowl of popcorn and we were watching some romantic movie and we were hugging and kissing a little bit. And then everything that I had taught young people before that I just said with you came rushing into my mind and I literally stood up and popcorn went everywhere. It's truth. Went everywhere. I grabbed my wife. I said, we're out of here. Not wife yet. I grabbed my wife-to-be, Tammy. Took her out of the apartment, put her in the car, and drove down to 65 and went to Perkins. And Tammy's sitting there before me. And she goes, what in the world's going on? And I looked at Tammy and I said, honey, I said, listen to me. I just care, I care too much about you to be alone with you. I care too much about you to be alone with you. Young people, it works. My wife, my wife was pure and she was a virgin when we got married because we were prepared and we made a plan. It can happen for you. It can happen for you. Now let's go back to Tammy, and here she is in her job. Yeah, give praise to God for that. Hey, go for it. 
Because really, Tammy had the strength. I didn't. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the point is, is this. Tammy's at the, she's looking for a job. We got married. We're in Pittsburgh. And she applies for this organization that teaches English as a second language. And they took these internationals that would come in and they would teach them English as a second language so they could be educated and get a job. So Tammy puts her application in and she is hired. And at the first day on the job, she realizes her boss and all the teachers and all the other employees are not only anti-Christian, they're anti-God. Most of them are atheists. So Tammy realizes that she's going to have to be Christian in an unchristian world. So what she do? She makes a plan. The plan was to be faithful to God, to do her very best that she could do in the job, and then when she's at the job, she was going to do everything she could to be like Christ in every way. That was her plan. Six months into it, she's brought into the, into the office of the boss. The boss brings her in and says basically that they need to... They needed Tammy to lie about her education in order for them not to lose some valuable funding for their program. And Tammy looked at her boss and and very lovingly said, I love my job. And I love being here and and I will do whatever I can to help you not lose your funding. But I will not lie. I will not lie. I will not lie about my credentials. And the boss looked at her very sternly and said, well, in that case, you have two weeks to find another job. And she walked out of the office. Tammy came home. Of course, she was upset. We prayed. And as we prayed, God began to help Tammy to remember that God is in control. That's why I told you about Nebuchadnezzar and how he changes. But also God reminded her, now wait a minute, you made a plan, work your plan. Be faithful to me, do your best work at the job that you can do, and be, a, and be like me in everything that happens at that job site. So she had two weeks and she said, I'm going to end well. I'm going to finish well, that's what I'm going to do. So she went back to work and within the first week, it was a Friday of the first week, that they had a surprise evaluation from the national office. And all these evaluators came to their site and they evaluated everything. The teachers in the classroom and the management and so on. At the end of the day, they were all brought into the business office where the boss was and all the teachers and employees and the evaluators met. And the evaluators came in and said, there's two things you've got to change. And then they started talking about this real bright spot. And they went on to talk about this one teacher that was teaching and talked about how this person was so unbelievable and impactful and how great that person was. And then they went on and into Tammy's surprise and amazement that the bright spot at that site was her. And they they said, Tammy, would you please stand? And she stood before all the people. And they went on to praise her and went on to talk about how effective she was and how she made an impact. And then they asked the boss to stand. And they asked the boss to stand and they began to praise the boss and commend the boss for hiring Tammy. (laughs) Needless to say, Tammy never heard another word about being fired. Now hear me. God blessed her. Gave her favor like he gave Daniel favor. But because, like Daniel, Tammy had 
prepared herself, meaning she knew what the word of God said. She didn't have to think about it. She knew that the word of God said, thou shalt not lie. So when she was asked to lie, she knew the answer because she decided in her heart way before she ever got the job that she was not going to defile the word of God. She knew the answer. She knew it was a non-negotiable answer. The answer was no. Regardless of whether or not she gets promoted or whether or not she gets fired, the answer was going to be the same. No. And then she worked her plan. And because she stayed faithful, she did her job, she was commended. Now let me ask you this. If you're here today, whether you're in a family or in a job or in a school, and you, how do you be Christian in an unchristian world? You've got to know the Word of God. You've got to decide in your heart that you're going to be obedient to it. And then you've got to make a plan. And how do you make that plan? You begin to pray, and God, believe me, will give you a plan. But you need to be prepared, everybody. Let me ask you this. When Jesus was being tempted, what did he do? Remember, he was tempted three times. Nebuchadnezzar was trying to change them three ways. What did Jesus do? He said, it is written. Every time Satan came to him, it was written. In other words, he not only knew the word of God, but he was committed to the word of God, and he wasn't going to change. And what did the devil have to do? He had to flee from him. Second, is that when you're talking about a plan that you need to pray and ask God to give you that plan. But when you take on that plan, let me tell you this, honey works a lot better than vinegar. When you're working your plan, you got to love people. you got to speak truth in love when you're having to, to stand up for what you believe in. And I'll end with this. But the last thing that goes on here, everybody, you're not always commended. Sometimes there's tremendous consequences and cost to standing up for Jesus. Daniel and Tammy, they were given favor. But how about the apostles in the New Testament? We know about Judas, he killed himself. And what happened to John? He was exiled. But the rest of those boys, what happened to them? They were all killed. You know what the real question in the room is today? It's this. Is Jesus Christ your Lord? That's what's really being asked. Is Jesus your Lord? You know, when you talk about lordship, it's very much like being married. When Tammy and I stood before God and we were married, I looked at Tammy and I said yes to her, and that meant I said no to everybody else. When Tammy said yes to me, she was saying no to everybody else. Is really Jesus Christ your Lord? If he is, then you will be prepared And you'll have a plan. And we'll be part of the four rather than the 66. We'll be part of the 38 rather than the 62. As Brad comes and leads us, whatever you need to do, however you need to pray, make sure whether you need to be in the word, whether you need to make a plan, or whether you need to just commit yourself to Jesus as Lord. Do that this morning. And know this, everybody. Jesus is already committed to you, right? He's already said yes to you. So know that he loves you. Pray. Do what the Spirit of God tells you to do. Amen.